Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you haven't ordered your copy of Peter Hart's new book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, now is the time to do it. The Gallipoli Evacuation was one of the most important chapters of the entire Gallipoli story, and this is the first book to explore it in detail. From dithering politicians in London, to the winter storms, to the ingenious ruse that enabled the Allies to escape, such as the self-firing rifles and the silent periods, this book tells the whole gripping story of this life and death gamble. And Peter Hart really is the man to tell this story with his wonderful writing style, his insightful accounts of the history, and most importantly, his use of quotes from veterans of the campaign. The story of the Gallipoli evacuation is really told in the words of the men who were there. The book is now available in softcover or ebook, and you can order it all over the world and pay in your local currency. So visit our website, livinghistorytv.com, to order your copy today. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to Living History. This week marks the anniversary of a really important Australian battle in 1918. It's the Battle of Mont-Saint-Quentin. Now, it's probably not a place that that jumps to mind when you think of the First World War. There's many more famous battles than Mont-Saint-Quentin. And it was a relatively small action by the scale of the First World War, but it was a really important one for the Australians. And this week, considering it's the anniversary, I thought it was the perfect opportunity to just break this battle down in a little bit more detail and uh, and dig into the history a bit more. And joining us to do that is one of our leading historians who leads our tours for Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours. It's Joe Hook. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Now, this battle took place in late August, early September 1918. Before we start looking in depth at the Battle of Mont-Saint-Quentin, can you just give us an overview of what was happening at this stage in 1918? Yeah, I think sort of like we have to go right back to um, Operation Michael, really, with the where the German army really stormed um, through British and Australian lines, um, tried to break the French and British Amiens, um, and right up through the month of end of March um, through to April, um, there was sort of attack, follow counterattack, follow counterattack until eventually, um, as we know, sort of on the eve of Anzac Day, uh, 1918, um, the Australians, uh, together with the British, managed to um, capture 
Villas Bretonneau retake that. And really from there on in, uh, they were pushing further and further eastwards, um, pushing all the way and trying to almost keep in a straight line, keep in abreast of each other. And by this time, um, by the end of March, beginning of April, uh, Monash um, is Anzac Corps commander. And we come through to July 1918 um, when he orchestrates his uh, famous Battle of La Hamel, which he predicted would be over in 90, 90 minutes, um, slightly out three minutes out because it was overdone and dusted in 93 minutes and really from then on from July into August um, as you know 8th of August uh, known by uh, Ludendorff says this is the blackest day of the German army because we are really starting to push forward our tactics have changed our methods have changed and really throughout August the Australians are fighting um, from the north to south really eastwards on a line going forward until by um, nearly the end of August they reached the outskirts of Mont Saint-Quentin, uh, the Bouchevans Ridge which is a ridge line um, which lies near Mont Saint-Quentin and the outskirts of the town of Perone. I think it's difficult to overstate what an effective fighting force the Australians had become by this stage of the war. We, I don't want to do this partisan thing where we say that Australia was the best troops on the ground and we won the war and all that rubbish that we go on with as Australians sometimes. But I think it is true to say that the Australians were as good as any of the British units. There were, there were British units that were certainly as good as the Australians. The Canadians were excellent. The New Zealanders were excellent. There were many great fighting forces on the battlefield by this stage. But Australia certainly was at the top of that pile, weren't they? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and like you say, um, not to diminish anything, um, there were some very good uh, British divisions. But the difference between the Australians and the Canadians to the British was that within their cause, uh, divisions were shifted around. So, for example, if you were part of a British division, you might be in 4th Corps one day, and then the next month you'll be 5th Corps. This did not happen with the Australians, nor did it happen with the Canadians. So there was this national emphasis uh, within um, the ANZAC Corps, with the Corps Command, um, that maintained this real nationality. And certainly by this time in the war, most of the, uh, the divisional commanders um, underneath Monash um, were Australians um, and were experienced battle-hardened divisional commanders, as were most brigade and battalion commanders. It's a great point you make about cohesion because being able to stay together and fight as a cohesive force, as you just mentioned, was a luxury that was not afforded to the British. It was something the Americans insisted on when they joined the war. It was something the Australians insisted on, the Canadians did. I mean, the New Zealanders were happy with their one division to be part of the British Army. But it meant that, as you say, we could fight as a unit, as a, as a fighting force. We could learn from each other. Each battalion could learn about the other battalions. Each division could learn and fight together as a cohesive unit. And in addition, all the support forces, most of the support forces that we needed in terms of transport and pioneers and engineers and everything behind the scenes were provided by Britain, weren't they? So it enabled the Australians to really just become this this elite frontline fighting force. Yeah, yeah, most definitely that's correct. Um, however, uh, not forgetting that, 
by this time in the war, this fighting force um, was quite greatly reduced because of the impetus of the two referendums for um, conscription. And also, when we're coming up to the fighting at um, specifically Mons and Quentin and Perone, um, these men have been fighting literally non-stop. And a vast majority of them are exhausted. So to just give you an example of one of the companies, A Company of the 20th Battalion, normally would be something like 250 men strong as a company. It is down to just 82 men. Um, but even then, it considers itself a strong company uh, compared to other Australian companies. Well, I certainly appreciate you mentioning the 20th, Joe, because that's the uh, the men from my hometown of West Wyalong in New South Wales were all 20th Battalion men. So I know that this battle was specifically very important to them uh, in the district where I grew up. Just paint us a picture. Give us a, a bit of an overview of the geography. Why is this strange named place Monson Quentin? Why is this even important on the battlefield? Um, well, it's quite difficult to describe without actually being on the ground. And when we come on a tour... Um, obviously with Matt McLaughlin tours, we follow as closely, as you know, in the footsteps of the Australians. And so with the way we come up to Mont San Quentin is via a town called Clary. Now, Clary sits on the Somme River and the Somme kind of goes round in a curve and it joins um, the Canal du Nord. And as it comes round in a curve, we come through Clary which needed to be taken by the Australians, the 3rd Australian Division, in order to capture Mont Saint-Quentin. And then we come over a ridge, and this is known as Bouchevans Ridge. And really, that the Bouchevans Ridge is the key to taking Mont Saint-Quentin, um, and then you drop down. And as you come into Perone, you see to your left Mont Saint-Quentin, and it's something like 375 feet above sea level, but it is a dominant feature. And unless you take the Bouchevans Ridge, that is the key to taking Mont Saint-Quentin, and unless you can take Mont Saint-Quentin, you can't take Perone. So Mont Saint-Quentin really dominates um, to the north, um, to the south. And with the Germans being ensconced up there, they have really... Um, a complete view of the ground in front of them. So it was important that it was taken. It's really important that we point out here the nature of the ground because when we say ridge, people who haven't been there and walked the ground might be thinking a ridge like they would see in New Guinea on the Kokoda Track or you know some steep escarpment. It's not like that. It's rolling countryside. It's not flat, perhaps like Flanders further to the north. It's quite rolling farm country. Uh, but, I mean, we say Mons and Quentin, it means mountain, but it's not really a mountain, it's it's just a hill. However, as you say, the perspective from that high ground is all important. And when we talk about the First World War, when we talk about important pieces of ground, we're often talking about high ground, aren't we? Yes, yeah. I mean, um, for those of uh, the our clients that come on my tour, I do sort of bash on about high ground a bit. And this was something the Germans realised early on in the First World War. And so um, in 1914, when they would, would withdraw to positions, they would withdraw to high ground, just literally for the simple fact that if you hold the high ground, you can defend anything below you. And it makes 
much more difficult for attacking troops to attack uphill um, when they're facing something like artillery fire and withering machine gun fire that's literally spraying the battlefield. So any kind of high ground, whether it be if you're in Flanders, whether you're on Hill 60, 60 metres above sea level, or the undulating ground of the Somme battlefield, which is, is more rolling, as you quite rightly say, any high ground is important. So how did the Australians come to be here facing this hill of Mont Saint-Quentin and the town of Perron next to it? Um, well, really, through fighting eastwards along the line of... Um, uh, there's there's an old Roman road that runs from Villers Bretonneux, and if you follow it all the way along, you eventually you eventually get to San Quentin, where the Australians would fight their last battle. But halfway um, along that road, and and just really to the north of it, you have Perón, and throughout that um, July and August, right up till. Um, the end of August, they're fighting using this really as an axis of advance, taking little villages and towns as the and as they are pushing the German army backwards, and the German army are withdrawing, and using different tactics. And then really, um, forget the tactics that were used in 1916. This is a complete war now of movement, very very difficult. And even Monash says that you know the the kind of um, uh, preparatory bombardments that we've been used to in 1916. They're really, I'm not going to say old tactics, but, but now he believes that, that the success to attack is, is, is using Lewis guns and, and really a war of movement using air power, uh, tanks, cavalry as well. It's a bit of a surprise that we hear the word cavalry in there, but cavalry in the First World War was really the only way that you could uh, move quickly. And um, Lewis guns, of course, being the light machine guns that the Allies uh, carried were um, were really important in this action. The one thing that I, from reading Monash's notes about this, I, I get the distinct impression that Monash, by this stage of the war, was really hungering for an Australian victory. I mean, the Australians had participated in lots of great victories, but even at places like Hamel, we attacked alongside the Americans. August 8 was a big Allied combined effort. Do you get the impression from reading about this that Monash was really hungry for a purely Australian victory at this time in the war? Um, I don't know whether he was hungry for a purely Australian victor victory, but I think he was he was buoyed on and the essence to what he did. Um, and I think even Rawlinson mentions this, although correct me if I'm wrong, was to keep the German army on the move um, so that they couldn't. Uh, form any defensive lines and stop and reorganize as long as you kept harrying them along um, then you kept them on the move and you demoralized them and I think that was the main thinking behind it and certainly Ludendorff um, when the German army sort of settled down at Mont Saint-Quentin in Peron he wanted them to hold that um, and form a defensive line there whereas Monash quite quite uh, um, correctly knew that you had to keep pushing them, you had to keep attacking them until eventually uh, you just wore them down. So we're now in late August 1918. The Australians have been pushing the Germans back and back and back in their sector. The British have been, and, and the French and the Americans have also been pushing the Germans back as one long line. But in the Australian sector, the Australians have been pushing the Germans back every day since they started attacking in early August. Now they face the Somme River 
this hill called Mont Saint-Quentin and the town of Peron. Let's talk about the battle. What what happened on the 31st of August, 1918? Okay, well, um, initially in, in planning this attack, um, Monash knows that he's got uh, various obstacles, namely waterways that he have to, has to cross. These are all heavily guarded by the German army um, and some of the bridges are even destroyed. So even before the battle um, plans, he has to change his initial plans in that two of his divisions, his third and his second division, he has to move them to the left in order to get them into position for the attack. Um, and on the 30th of August, um, Monash, even in his own diaries, notes himself that progress is slow, um, because of heavy enemy opposition on the eastern banks of the, the Somme, and in attempts to take the village of Clary are being hampered by this. However, um, he plans the attack to start on the, um, 31st of August. Um, at six o'clock in the morning. And really, when I guide this particular battle, my main focus is on the second Australian division. So with the second Australian division, if we're standing there on the ground, um, our furthest battalion who are attacking is the, uh, 20th battalion. Um, to their left are the 17th battalion, um, and then to their left, sorry, to their right are the 17th Battalion, and then to their to their right are the 19th Battalion, uh, with the 18th Battalion in reserve. And um, you, what we've got to remember is that these battalions are extremely depleted, and they're very, very tired. And even Charles Bean, um, the official historian, um, he's he almost doesn't think this is going to work because the Australians are so tired. Uh, yet on that morning of the 31st of August, um, Monash doesn't use a creeping barrage. Um, they have kind of like a, um, the artillery will um, target certain positions on Mont Saint-Quentin um, and lay down artillery fire and then lift. But literally the Australians are reliant on their uh, Lewis gunners, rifle grenades, bombers going forward. And so without a preparatory bombardment, they negate that um, the Germans are, are left not knowing really what's going to happen. Um, so normally when we attacked in 1916 and 1917, we would have a preparatory bombardment. And really all that would tell the Germans was that we were going to attack. This time we didn't do that. Um and literally on that first morning, um, as we stand on the battlefield, we stand along the path where the 17th Battalion attacked, going towards uh, Mont Saint-Quentin. And such is the sheer um, uh, impetus of the attack that the Germans are taken completely by surprise. The Australians, according to um, the accounts that you read, charge up um, to the German positions, literally with bayonets fixed, Lewis gunners throwing themselves down, um, the rifle gr grenades firing into German positions, and they are screaming at the top of their voices. So for a lot of the Germans, this gives them the um, idea that actually more men are attacking than they are at the time. 
And certainly that initial attack on the 31st, um, they don't reach the top of Mont Saint-Quentin, um, but they get quite far forward in order to literally, um, you know, the German army at this stage is in disarray. Um, and I think Jack Sheldon mentions in his book about, um, you know, some of the, these German machine gun positions are so surprised that they don't even have time to man their machine guns before the Australians are on top of them. It's interesting. The, my favourite quote of this that people, when they come to Monson Quentin, love hearing is that the instruction was given that the Australians should yell like bushrangers as they charged up the slope. And I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine if you're a poor German machine gunner and the ferocious Australians charging up the slope, what that must have been like. It must have been uh, some pretty tough fighting. There was a, a second phase of the battle, though, wasn't there? The, on the 31st of August, they captured a large portion of the of the Mont, um, but then the Germans did what Germans always do, and they counterattacked in strength. So tell us about the counterattack and then the second phase of the battle. Yeah, you're correct. They did ca- counterattack, and so I believe um, they made no less than 10 counterattacks. Um, and what they did... They didn't um, totally, um, some accounts will tell you, they, they pushed the Australians right back to virtually their starting positions. Um, from what I believe, they didn't do this. Um, and various uh, elements of the 17th Battalion and the 20th Battalion to their left held their positions. But what the Germans did was that, that they managed to infiltrate between them. Their idea was to split the battalions and then literally to encircle them and destroy them there. Um, so they did counterattack, um, and the Australians received quite a lot of casualties during this counterattack. Um, but Monash wasn't going to let it lie there, um, and he would arrange for the um, 6th Brigade of the Australian 2nd Division, um, literally on the 1st of September, he sends out another order, and they are to virtually following the footsteps of the 5th Brigade, go through them and exploit any positions that the 5th Brigade had taken. Um, and one of the great accounts that I always talk about when we're at Mont Saint-Quentin is a fabulous diary. And this diary is written by a guy called Percy Smythe. Um, and he's 24th Battalion, Percy Smythe. And I always mention him because I show our clients a picture of him and he's he's if you if you're a young lady in in Perone um I'm sure you would have made eyes for Percy Smythe because he's a, a, a very good looking officer but he talks about um coming up to their uh jumping off position but also having to deal with the casualties um from the German counterattack. Um so he talks about dealing with them he talks about um, some of the things that are quite grisly, um, having to sort of literally cut somebody's arm off with a blunt penknife, um, having to deal with the dead and the wounded, and also collecting the personal effects of the um, dead who are lying in the, the trenches as they as they are coming up through and preparing for their attack, and identifying them. And he gives this fascinating account of... Um, trying to identify this one sergeant who's gone with them through Gallipoli, um, through all the their time on the Western Front. And eventually they managed to identify this sergeant through um, a letter he's received from his mother and that identifies him. But his, his diary 
Um, it's it's there for people to see. You can look it up. When I was doing my research, when I first started working for you, Matt, it was one of the diaries I thought was so eloquently put. And also he carries on to tell you about the attack. And he mentions certain positions on the battlefield. There's an old cemetery. He mentions the sunken lane. And if you go to the battlefield today, um, they're still there. So there's still that tangible evidence that you can relate directly back to Charlie Smythe's diary um, of the attack on Mont San Quentin. So let's talk about the closing stages of the battle. So the 6th Brigade's come up. They've pushed through where the 5th Brigade had uh, had uh, held the line against the German counterattacks. Tell us about 6th Brigade completing the capture of the Mont. Okay, so um, uh, really, um, so once 6th Brigade um, initially, um, when they go to, when, when they come through the 5th Brigade, they're being held up by a, a German machine gun nest. And there's one young man who's acting as a runner. His name's McAteer. I can't remember off the top of my head whereabouts he came from in Australia. But he realises um, the position is being held up. He um, single-handedly takes out this uh, German machine gun prison. I think about 20 Germans surrender. He goes on to take another one and then goes on to take it a third where he's killed. Now, he would be awarded a Victoria Cross. But what he does do is open the way forward for the Australians to attack. Um, and very much like the um, previous day's attacks, you have Lewis gunners throwing themselves forward, men firing rifle brigades. And the, the thing with firing rifle brigade, rifle grenades, excuse me, is that you, they, they have a high trajectory and they have high explosive. So if you fire them onto German positions, the Germans hopefully will bolt. And where they will bolt, the Lewis gunners will throw themselves down and literally mow um, any enemy down as they bolt from their positions. And this happens and keeps happening until um, the Australians literally um, almost run into their own barrage and the whole um, attack. Um, stops is stalled at about one thirty that afternoon. Um, they realise they can't get any further forward, so they call um, up another artillery barrage. The uh, uh, brigade commander Robertson, I think his name is, calls up for an artillery barrage. Uh, this goes in, and the twenty third and twenty fourth battalions again attack forward. They're being held up by a quarry on the northern side of uh, Mont Saint-Quentin. And men initially from the 21st Battalion who were in reserve but have been brought into the positions, they attack uh, the quarry, um, try to disperse the machine gun nests there and are unable to do so, have to fall back. Um, and they fall back to a position where there's a guy called Sergeant Albie Lowison and Lewison reorganises his, his group um, and they attack again forward, literally with um, grenades. One man going up, throwing the grenade in, falling back, then another throwing another grenade in, falling back and so on until this carries on. And I think Lewison has only about six men with him before eventually they um, rush the machine gun nest and capture that on the Mont. And while all this is going on as well, 
the sixth brigade have as part of supporting them um they have the um men of the uh, second the second machine gun company of the second australian um machine gun battalion and part of part and parcel of this battalion is a man called towner now towner is described by charlie smythe as a very cool calm collected extraordinary individual and he um will go forward he captures german machine guns single-handedly using his revolver and using german machine guns he he eventually manages to put them in defensive positions so he uses the captured german machine guns town has already been wounded um he's taken a wound which has pierced his helmet and has grazed his skull but he still continues supporting uh, the men of the 23rd and 24th battalions um and what he doesn't tell them um and in the accounts that I've read that he would single-handedly recce forward to find better tactical um positions for his machine guns but together with machine guns um uh, with the men going forward using these new tactics using their lewis guns using um their grenades they eventually manage to take uh, mont saint quentin the german army um fall back and once but once mont saint quentin has actually been taken um this then leaves the 7th brigade who will eventually exploit forward from mont saint quentin along that ridge pushing um the germans ever further eastwards by taking the mont though what it does allow them to do is at the same time the 5th australian division is beginning their attack in perone and once mont saint quentin has been taken it denies the enemy the dominance of that hill um and allows the 5th australian division to to consequently and at the same time um take the town of perone I'd forgotten that detail that you just mentioned, Joe, that in Edgar Towner's Victoria Cross action that he was putting German machine guns into use. And, and I was reading that this was actually part of Australian doctrine and British doctrine as well, that they knew that as they swept forward, as they captured positions from the Germans, they were going to capture German machine guns. And the German machine guns were the same basic principle as the Vickers guns that they used in the, in the British and Australian forces, uh, but slightly different. So they trained their machine gunners on how to use the German guns as well, so that as they swept forward and captured German guns, they could then bring those to use against the Germans themselves. I, just, I, I love that detail. It's quite an extraordinary uh, facet of the battle. Yeah, I mean, um, Towner for me is... Um his action and if you see a picture of Towner unfortunately we don't have a picture because this is a podcast but if you just look at the picture of him he's this extraordinary man who just looks cool calm and collected and Smythe in his his diary he even he even describes him as this man who was very quiet very stoic but just knew his job um and um I think quite a humble man who um, would probably, um, and this is just my guesstimate, would have been awarded the VC, but would have been probably totally um, amazed that he was awarded a Victoria Cross for what he believed he was just doing his job. 
Now, the, the Battle of Mont Saint-Quentin after it was over and the, the, the 5th Division did a great job capturing Perron as well in some very bitter hand-to-hand fighting. Afterwards, it was lauded as one of the greatest Australian achievements of the war, that this ragtag, understrength group of Aussies had captured these two quite formidable positions. Do you see that it's one of the greatest Australian achievements of the war? I think for the Australians it was, yes, de- definitely. When you think about it, this was an all-Australian all battle. Although on their flanks you did have British divisions, but Mont Saint-Quentin itself, the capture of the Mont um, and Perone, was totally all Australian. And they came under, um, so uh, the Anzac Corps at the time came under the 4th Army. A 4th Army commander was a guy called Rawlinson, and even Rawlinson said himself it was one of the greatest feats of the war that he'd seen. So that's um, from the commander of the 4th Army, British officer Rawlinson, even he, he said this. Now, Joe, one of the things that you and I most love to do is to obviously walk the ground, and I think you get such a wonderful perspective on what was achieved when you actually get out there and strap the boots on and walk the ground. I always love visiting Mons and Quentin. I've been going there for nearly 20 years now. Just tell us about what you can still see on the ground there today because, I mean, even given the situation we're currently in, I'm desperate to get back over there, and hopefully eventually I will be able to. There's nothing quite like walking the ground, though, is there? No, no, I agree with you. And your desperation is echoed here in England, believe you me. Um, so I like Mont Saint-Quentin as well, because I think it's one of the, um, certainly for the British, it's very understated, because I think it's all Australian. I think the reason I know it so well is that all of our clients are predominantly Australian. We get the occasional New Zealander. Um, I've even had Americans on a Matt McLaughlin tour, but predominantly Australian. So not a lot of the Brits go down there. Um, there's not really a cemetery to see, and it hasn't been commercialised. Um, so when you come up through um, Cleary, which is obviously Cleary was a town on the banks of the River Somme had to be taken. You can see, you can point out Mont Saint-Quentin. So immediately you can give um, passengers, you have an idea of what a dominant feature it was. And we always come up and we drop off our passengers at the 2nd Australian Division Memorial. But we don't start there. Um, We walk down the road from there. And you can walk onto the very tracks where Smythe attacked with his um, battalion. And if you've got, we, I use a gadget, which I'm sure you will know of, but probably a lot of our passengers don't know of, called Linesman. And basically, this is a mapping system that puts trench maps onto a tablet. And you can actually follow them using GPS. So I always get this out. And you can see uh, the trenches of the German trenches, Gottlieb Trench, Elsa Trench, all of which are mentioned in the accounts. And so the track we're on, you can see it was originally there as a German trench at the time. Now, when we come down from um, the memorial, we turn right up um, a little road, little side road. And I know... that you know, Matt, exactly where I'm talking about. But if you follow that road down, you come to a civilian cemetery. Now, that cemetery is mentioned in Smythe's War Diary. The sunken road in which Towner is, you can still see it on the battlefield. So that's very, very tangible evidence of the battle that took place there. And we 
will quite often walk up a road that runs parallel to the main road. It's a little side road and it's called Labby, um, meaning the Abbey Road. And in the side of that road, you can see what is left of the old 7th century Abbey remnants. Now, prior to the First World War, there was an old Abbey at Mont Quentin that goes back to the 7th century. And if you're very careful and you look very, very closely, in that Abbey wall is still a shell, still right embedded within the Abbey wall. Um, so that always um, is worth a photo stop for all our passengers. They're always told not to touch it, but please, you can take photos if you want to. And then if you walk right up to the top of Mont San Quentin, you used to be able to, you can't do so now because it's all um, fenced off, I think, because they've had so many battlefield visitors. But you used to actually be able to walk in what was the old trench systems. You can still see the quarry there uh, where Loison um was awarded his VC for the action there. Um, so it still is visible um, for anybody who goes up there to have a look and see. Obviously, it's easier with a guide that knows the history, but there is still tangible evidence on that battlefield um, of the actions that took place there over 100 years ago. It's disappointing they've got that area fenced off because I always said that it was one of the great... Um, unmaintained original trench system that you could find on the Western Front. There were trenches through there, shell holes. You can still see them from the other side of the fence, but you can't walk in them now. It's probably good for preservation that people can't walk in there and damage them, but uh, it is quite a remarkable sight. And, of course, the Australian Memorial there, the 2nd Division Memorial, which depicts a digger, you know, an Australian soldier standing on a plinth. That's got quite an interesting history as well, doesn't it? Tell us about the Australian 2nd Division Memorial. It has got a very interesting history. And... Um, I actually like it because it's uh, it's different, as you know, from all the other divisional memorials, which are all that, like this kind of obelisk shape. But the original memorial, um, it was quite a controversial memorial because it because it depicted a digger bayoneting an eagle. Now, to the German army, uh, certainly the German army of the Second World War, the eagle is the eagle is symbolic to them. So they took it um, very, very harshly that this um, this memorial should be an Australian soldier um, literally um, bayoneting something that was so symbolic to them. So the actual memorial itself was destroyed although the plinth remained as it is. So today you see a much more, shall we say, politically correct memorial of an Australian soldier facing the way um, that the attack that was going in towards Mont San Quentin, um, and that was erected, I think it was in the 1970s, um, but the plinth on which it stands is the original just the memorial has been changed. And quite a lot of times when the Australians, I have the original, uh, the picture of the original memorial, and you look at it and it is quite aggressive. And surprisingly, quite a few of them turn around and say to me, you know, Joe, I, I can imagine that that would be, uh, create some sort of animosity, um, certainly in the 1940s in the Second World War. It's certainly reflective of the attitude of the Australian veterans, wasn't it, that they felt when the second division, each, each of the five Australian divisions chose a spot to build their memorial after the war and the Australians from the second division chose Mons and Quentin, 
And the way they wanted to depict their great victory there was showing a German eagle being bayoneted on the ground. It certainly was. It certainly did reflect their feelings about the accomplishment of taking Mont Saint Quentin. But uh, it, it's it's just such an arresting memorial when people go there today. When Australians go there and see this just huge looming digger just standing there proud, it is really a wonderful Australian sight on the battlefields, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, and we quite often, as you, as you well know, when we do tours to the Western Front, um, we, it's a great place to take a group photograph. Um, and also it has, um, all the panels around it. So you can spend time and everything, everything around it is depicts this kind of, um, the, the feat that was accomplished by the Australians. The avenue it sits in is called Avenue de, de uh, Avenue des Les Australians, excuse my French. Um, and there is this kind of, um, you, you know, the, this, this, uh, nature of the accomplishment that happened there. Well, Joe, it's a, it's a very special battlefield. It's, it's, it's wonderful that on these anniversaries we can look at perhaps these lesser well-known chapters of Australian history and, and tell these stories because it's important we remember them. And walking the ground with you is one of the great privileges that people have. So I'm looking forward to the tours getting up and running again so that people can return and, and walk the ground with you, Joe, because you are one of our most popular historians who, who leads our tours. But um, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about Monson Quentin. It's a pleasure and... Um... Hello to everybody in Australia. I hope I'm out touring with you very soon. Let's all pray for a vaccine. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.